Welcome to the Drug Futurisms Podcast, where we give you the space time to imagine different and possible drug worlds. We talk to drug policy experts, from drug users and activists to academics, and ask them the question they so rarely get to answer, what could a better future hold? So, uh, Ryan, welcome to uh, the Drug Futurisms podcast. Uh, you're uh, our guest number one, uh, despite hey, the hey. fact that we <laughs> talked with uh, uh, Sheila Vakaria uh, uh, this morning. It's, it's a little bit flipped. Um, I think, like, one, like, thanks so much for being willing to do this kind of with us. Um, I think, like, Claire and I both like, were like, we need to have Ryan on the show. Um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, and I think like it would be good to like introduce maybe folks as to why um, uh, you were in the New York Times recently. Um, you know, you've been doing the uh, what the fentanyl uh, kind of fact checking um, around these kind of media myths. Uh, but maybe for people who don't know kind of what that is, maybe you could go into your background a bit and like what uh, you've kind of been doing. Yeah, thank you, Claire and Alex, so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Um, I am Ryan Marino. I'm a medical toxicologist, emergency physician, and addiction medicine uh, physician in Cleveland. But uh, the main reason people might know me if, if you're not a patient of mine in Cleveland, which I mean, I was going to say hopefully not, but hopefully you are or not. Um, I am active on social media trying to kind of debunk drug myths because there are so many misconceptions, so much misinformation about drugs that's out there. Um, And really, we just have like really terrible, bad, terribly bad uh, drug education and information in this country as a whole. I don't think people get any good drug education. Uh, unless they go out and search for it or have some sort of specialization in in some sort of relevant field. Um, and so that, that's me, I guess. And you're also, you're a toxicologist. So can you kind of just give a, a like a really brief intro to what that means in terms of your actual work? Yeah, so toxicology is a really cool field of medicine, um, and there's plenty of other different toxicology fields, but I'm a medical toxicologist, um, and so I primarily deal with, quote-unquote, the poison patient, uh, and so this could be anyone who was bitten by a venomous snake, um, stung by something, ingested a plant, was poisoned uh, intentionally, overdosed on, on drugs to kill themselves. Uh, but what I've seen in my career over the past few years, which is, is not very long, has been primarily kind of been related to the overdose crisis that we're seeing in this country and the mass poisoning in our drug supply. Um, and so that's kind of where my interest in fentanyl and opioids and addiction came from um, and has led to other things on its own. But certainly you might meet a medical toxicologist if you ever bitten by a rattlesnake uh, or have like a accidental Tylenol overdose or something like that as well. 
Yeah. And so like, it, you know, like you're, you're kind of like a Twitter uh, star, um, I would say, in like the drug policy community. Um, how did you kind of, yeah, end up falling into this, um, you know, like you've done like, like it, it like kind of this myth busting um, around uh, fentanyl? Yeah. I mean, I think I first got involved in Twitter several years ago. I have an old Twitter account because it was the one I made in college, but um, it was inactive for quite a few years. Um, a few years ago was doing a project trying to get Narcan into patients' hands from the ED and like got it all funded. It was easy to go, ready to go. Um, and it was still not being given out. And so I kind of asked a bunch of colleagues and heard all of these ridiculous myths and misconceptions. Like we were enabling people to use more drugs. We'd give them Narcan and then they'd like run over a family after they re their overdose recurred 30 minutes later. Um, and so that was kind of where I realized there was an issue. Um, but then the fentanyl thing was just something I heard in the news, these stories, people seeing touching fentanyl and quote unquote overdosing. And I mean, I thought it was very funny, like this is totally impossible and implausible. This is just ridiculous, bad reporting. Um, but then one day, I mean, I showed up to see a patient and staff was closing the door, stuffing towels under the door, and the patient had overdosed on the floor of their room in the hospital. Um, and everybody was concerned that this was a carfentanil overdose. And so they needed to seal off the room instead of resuscitating the patient. And that was when it kind of clicked that misinformation has real consequences. Um, and I, I regret the fact that it took, took that much, um, but these are the kind of things that we're still seeing today. People are not being resuscitated appropriately. Um, and the, the fear and misconceptions about fentanyl still are out there and very pervasive. That's pretty amazing, especially when you think that in the hospital, we have certainly given patients too much opioid to the point where you could probably term it an overdose and no one treats them that way. If it's an opioid from our actual pharmacy. Um, wow. It's an amazing anecdote. It, 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 it's so funny how that, that myth, um, like it, it's so weird that that myth has kind of stayed around. I, I, I remember at first, um, when like the overdose crisis was like really starting to get public, um, news and you were getting all of these kind of stories, um, back in like 2015, 2016, I was doing a uh, nightlife and festival harm reduction. And this was like right around when the fentanyl test strips, uh, started secretly showing some efficacy. And I, I'm not going to say who snuck us these, but someone snuck my harm reduction organization, a bunch of fentanyl test strips. Um, and so I remember like I had to figure out how to use these things. Um, and I like, like found someone who, who could get me fentanyl so I could see what a positive looked like. And like, like I had like latex gloves on and a mask. And <laughs> then like, uh, there's like an article, I think in slate or something like that, that just completely myth busted, um, that, that story and like I had bought into this myth, um, uh, you know, but then it, it's just kind of continually perpetuated um, onwards. Um, uh, I feel like it's I, really I, easy to keep believing it because it's so heavily reinforced all over the place. Yeah, there's a new story like every every couple of weeks or so. Yeah, and it's just like so reported on so uncritically. Yeah. So how did it feel to kind of have this major um, newspaper, 
you know, kind of cover the story uh, finally. Because, you know, Slate, like the Nation, New Republic, like these are all like, like, you know, kind of lefty. Um, oh, do you mean the San even, Diego like, Sheriff story? Yeah. Um, yeah. But this okay. is like kind of like the, the New York Times covering this, like, you know, yeah. is like a bit of a different kind of ballgame, right? Like, how did it feel to kind of get that recognition? Well, so I think my biggest concern, I mean, other than the fact that this information is all untrue and is uncritically reported, there's, there's no fact checking, which should be a basic tenet of journalism, um, is that there has never been any follow up. And myself and countless others have been at this for years, have reached out to these sources. Um, I mean, you can think of, of plenty of big name sources that have published these stories. Uh, and never get any sort of response, any sort of legitimate follow-up. And in our 24-hour news cycle, everyone kind of just moves on and heard that someone overdosed from being near fentanyl or touching fentanyl. And that's been a big problem and seems to be perpetuating what's going on. So what was interesting and, in my mind, a positive out of this San Diego Sheriff story is that, for whatever reason this time, a lot of news outlets actually took down the stories and reported that this wasn't true. And I mean, it made it to the New York Times, among among many others, big names out there, um, to say that everyone in the medical community says this is physically impossible. And when you look at this beyond kind of face value, this was the sheriff made the diagnosis of overdose from body cam footage that doesn't show an overdose. Uh, and there's no other information to support that or no other corroboration to support that. Um, I feel like it, this is probably a pretty good point. I, Alex, do you feel like this is a pretty good point to kind of segue into like the kind of the carceral context that we talked about? Um, I, I, I know you I had a plan. I actually wanted to... Um, uh, yeah, like talk a little more about like toxicology, um, and uh, I the other kind of myth that like I like you know like toxicology is like this like Latin uh, term that comes from Greek, right? It's around like poison, um, the study of poisons. Um, and one of the things like we were really excited to talk to you about um, uh, was your uh, plants, uh, oh, yeah. and, and kind of like this this connection between like your plant collection, uh, especially around these like kind of toxic uh, plants and uh, yeah, like your work. Yeah, so I think that is a good um, like com comparison, I guess would be the word. But the cool thing about toxicology and just like getting information in general, um, so the father of toxicology is this guy Paracelsus, some European guy from hundreds of years ago. But the famous quote that's attributed to him is, poison is in everything. It's the dose that makes the poison. Um, and so, I mean, you can go look at your nearest river, lake, ocean. You could easily die from the water in those things. If you don't know what you're doing, if you get too much water, I mean, you could drown in your own bathtub. You could drown in a bucket of water. So I really like growing poisonous plants um, and like some of them are, are very beautiful. I mean, foxglove is one of my favorite plants. I think everybody should grow a foxglove. Um, foxglove has something in it called digitalis that they use as a medicine. Not so much anymore because it's not that great and it's kind of hard hard to dose. 
um, but it has been very useful for very many years. And plenty of these other toxic plants also have things that are derived and used therapeutically. Um, but one of the funniest things is that when I tell people that like I'm growing toxic plants is they'll give me like very bizarre looks. They're like, what, like, why would you yeah. do that? And then I'm like, oh, like what plants are you growing? And people will show me their like lily of the valley, which yeah. has essentially the same toxin as digitalis, as foxglove. Um, it's just that people don't know that they're already growing toxic plants. So everything can be toxic. Um, but as long as like, you know, know what you're doing, I mean, you could grow, I grow the plant that contains ricin. Um, it's a really cool looking plant. Uh, and as long as I don't chew up a bunch of the seeds, I'm not going to get ricin poisoned. Um, so I think that kind of information is very valuable. Uh, and if we could share that with more people, then people wouldn't be so weirded out that I grow toxic plants and people wouldn't be scared to resuscitate people who use drugs. Uh, one of the interesting things that, you know, going back to that kind of history or etymology is that like pharmacology uh, kind of shares like a similar root and that there's a French philosopher uh, by the name of like Jacques Derrida who talks about the pharmacon as like, yeah, it being like in Greek kind of having this ambivalent meaning. There's a third meaning that's like a bit has a different kind of word root, but like this ambivalent meaning of like both like the medicine and like the poison is like just is, is really just like dependent on these kind of uh is, is dependent on the dose right um uh it's something like uh i always find interesting like um uh the history of aspirin because people always get very intense about this like synthetic natural distinction um and like the history of aspirin is like this story of uh you have willow bark you know and, like we have like medical histories of like willow bark being used for like a really long time and it has this chemical compound in it that I can't remember because that's past my pay grade. Because uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a sociologist. Um, and maybe, Clary, if you know what the chemical is. Um, it's acetosalicylic acid. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> we uh, usually make it in organic labs, so I'm never going to forget it. It's a great yeah. student reaction. Continue. <laughs> um, and it, like, it actually has like a, you know, um, uh, it, like willow bark, you know, normally makes you nauseous. Um, it's like, you know, not a, um, you know, it, it does help with the pain, but it also like, you know, has all these side effects and aspirin is actually like a, a really big development in that it kind of removed a lot of those negative effects and also has these kind of other health benefits that like, you're still kind of being found. Um, yeah. And I mean, I give aspirin probably like five to 10 times a day when I'm at work, just because it's our first line treatment for anyone with kind of cardiac issues. Um, and the, the natural aspirin, the willow bark is not something that we can give people easily. We can't dose it correctly. Um, and eating bark isn't a pleasant experience for anyone who hasn't tried it. But on the flip side too, there's another form of salicylate or aspirin that people use for like candy and flavoring called methyl salicylate. And that is much more potent and toxic in kind of small doses. It gets absorbed very easily. Um, so it is kind of all just this big spectrum. One of the things that I like to bring up a lot when I'm teaching on naloxone, because there's always people that are anxious about it, is Tylenol. And I really like to pick on Tylenol because people just have tremendous anxiety about naloxone. They have anxiety about fentanyl. And I'm like, you know, I have Tylenol in my purse right now. You might as well. You probably have it at home and you probably pop it whenever you have a headache without really thinking twice about it. But 
I don't know if it is anymore, but at least a couple of years ago, I think it was acetaminophen overdose was the leading indication for uh, liver transplant in the U.S. It's yeah. not good for you. <laughs> like you can easily cross the line, but I mean, it's still, you know, it's a good tool to have in the kit, but you just have to use everything appropriately. And I feel yeah. like people don't seem to realize that you can go to the ER and get fentanyl. There's nothing like mystical about this molecule. It's just, it just is. It's all about that dose and knowing that it's there and knowing how to dose it. And that's what people who use drugs can't do. So I wonder, uh, I know it's never going to take a break for this, but I was wondering if we could unpack actually some of with, you know, like, cause it's not my background, but like some of the, you know, advantages to using fentanyl in this, uh, you know, medical context, as opposed to maybe some other semi-synthetic opioids, uh, you know, like, like, you know, why is, you know, is it kind of still taken up in this context? I feel like people are really scared about fentanyl, right? And so like maybe understanding why it's used um, could be helpful to you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is something, honestly, over the past few years, I have had more and more people where they come in with like a, their femur sticking out of their leg because it's broken, poking out of the skin. And I'm like, we're going to give you a dose of fentanyl so you can stop screaming in horrible pain. And people will be like, fentanyl, no. And I'm like, well, you, you need something. This is not, you can't go on like this. This is really bad. Um, and fentanyl is a wonderful drug. It's been available and FDA approved for use since the 1960s. It is a fully synthetic opioid, meaning it has no relation to the compounds found in the poppy plant. Um, and so it's actually more similar to like antipsychotics and anticholinergics. Honestly, that was it was derived from Demerol, which they synthesized when they were trying to create an anticholinergic, like an antihistamine medication. Um, but so fentanyl benefits are that as a synthetic, it doesn't have. If you're allergic to other opioids or if things like morphine make you itchy, which morphine causes a lot of histamine release, it makes pretty much everybody itchy when they get morphine can make people very nauseated. It can lower their blood pressure. Um, fentanyl doesn't have those effects. It's like more of a pure compound, so to speak in the way that it acts on kind of our receptors. Um, and so it's nice for those indications. It's, it's very easy to dose based on weight and kind of tolerance. Um, and certainly, I mean, it's, it's easy to overdose on because it's potent if you don't know the dose that you're getting, which happens on the street. But in the hospital, overdoses are incredibly rare. Um, and the only only real downside I can think of is that it has kind of a very short duration of effect. Um, it can persist in the body because it, it gets absorbed into pretty much every tissue. Um, but it really only lasts for like an hour or two max for most people. But when someone has like a broken bone or something that we need to reset, that's perfect. You don't want someone to be... On, on a medicine that's going to last for like 12, 24, 30 hours, something like that. Um, and if we know we can repeat the dose every couple hours um, and give it to people very safely without the risks of dropping their blood pressure, making them vomit, um, those kind of things. So I love fentanyl. I use it like every day. It's one of the preferred medications, especially for kind of patients with traumatic injuries um, because of the, the favorable profile as a synthetic but it's just unfortunate that it's become, it's taken on such like a demonization in recent years. Everyone knows fentanyl as this danger drug that's killing people. 
um, when it had like a, a 40 to 50 year history before that of not, not having really many problems. Well, and its short duration of action can also be useful in some contexts, like it's really popular in EMS, for example, because we're only with that patient for, you know, maybe an hour, probably less. And there's often a lot of hand-wringing about like, oh, well, if I give this patient enough pain relief by the time they get to the ER, they aren't going to be able to like really clearly describe it to the physician and the physician's ability to like gain that information from exam is going to be limited. And there's now like some pushback against that, especially with like the, the, um, with how common it is now to just image things that hurt like abdomens. Um, but it's still useful, you know, if we drop someone off at the ER because they're, you know, writhing in pain for their belly, it's nice. Like Dr. Muto said, that they're not going to continue to be completely disconnected from that pain and affected by it and maybe have their blood pressure lowered for hours later. Yeah, it's, I think it's honestly like really changed pre-hospital medicine um, because it's such a safer and more effective form of pain control. Yeah. Like when I was training to become a paramedic, that was the only pain control that we offered. Um, we didn't even use morphine, which was a mainstay for a really long time. Yeah. I mean, that has some variants, but yeah, it's useful and good and important and lets us move people without it being torture, just an important thing to have. Having been on the opposite side of that as a person who's in a car accident yeah. uh, a while back and where the paramedics were not able to give me anything, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I, you know, kind of wish that like, they would have had fun or maybe like, you know, or been able to like kind of give it to me. Um you know, like I, we weren't sure if my leg was broken kind of at the time. It wasn't, fortunately, but uh, a, a really funny side note, the only thing that they were allowed to give was nitrous oxide. And I, I was doing research for my master's at the time, uh, coming back from a music festival because I was doing work on drug checking. Okay. Um, and I, I, I thought that was really funny because nitrous oxide, you know, you get these like unenvironmentally friendly like what like, what cream <laughs> like canister things that people use all the time that are food grade and I, like coming back yeah whippets and coming back for a music <laughs> festival i thought that was really funny and then like they go in the tank they hadn't filled the tank before they left uh and so it really sucked to not have this uh you know kind of access uh which i wish yeah i wish i could have had um, at the time yeah uh, that is wild to hear about nitrous oxide being used like over Fentanyl. And in pre-hospital, that's interesting. Because so nitrous oxide is not inherently safe. I mean, nothing nothing is probably inherently safe, but uh, when we're talking about like, the risk-benefit analysis of any substance, um, I mean, anything can be good, anything can be bad. Yeah. That's just kind of wild to me. Yeah. Nitrous yeah. oxide has a lot of limitations in its both effect and its safety profile. I'm going to have to yeah. go read about that now, Alex. I haven't heard about that before. That's pretty wild. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I think it's the specific rules. It might be specific rules for BC. Yeah. British Columbia. I'm sorry. Also just using that in like an enclosed space, like an ambulance or something. I have a lot of questions. It's like, like a, what if the tank they leaked? Like, they're like, you just have to like hold it to your mouth and then I go and try to take a breath. And it's like the tank is empty. And I'm like, like from like like this like moment of like kind of like haha this is hilariously ironic to like uh fuck that fuck. <laughs> uh, um, uh, and it's, you have to like really hold the mask on i mean we used to use it a lot more in the hospital too and i just remember like it was primarily in kids 
and I'd have to get their parents to like pull it on. I was like, no, they're going to like scream. You got to like suffocate them with this mask. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of wild. I've we heard have a, that lot, they, a lot better things we can do. I've heard that they use nitrous and I promise I won't get too far off this, but I've heard that they use nitrous like during labor in Europe as like an alternative to, uh, to like medications that make the mother feel kind of sedate, which I thought was interesting. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> That's like, interesting. Nit- nitrous has like a, a cool kind of history uh, too. It's an interesting molecule. A, yeah. a good time, a good um, part to maybe take a break after this, but um, uh, you guys probably have a different perspective on this from like the, my kind of drug, my sociological drug nerd perspective. Uh, the father of like American psychology, William James, is pretty famous for um, having done a lot of nitrous oxide um, and uh, written up his like work on like religious and spiritual uh, experiences, um, kind of inspired uh, by this drug that yeah now is like uh, being like demonized in like certain countries in in Europe. Like when I lived in the Netherlands, like people could buy like big tanks of it rather than getting those individual canisters. And you like walk around like city hey, festivals efficiency. and people would be selling like balloons. Uh-huh. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's like this, but it's like this treated kind of like this demon drugs are like, we're seeing kids like every day coming in with like, you know, problems with like nitrous, which like do like, you know, like B12 deficiency is my understanding is one of the, uh, the big kind of risks, but um, yeah, like there's this kind of interesting like history of like you know this major figure in American psychology who's like very influenced by this uh, um, drug and like this kind of introspective method in psychology too. Yeah, yeah. I love my story of the the guy who found it. Well, he didn't found. So the guy who first marketed MDMA in the U.S was like a lapsed priest hippie and just got really into it and became like this huge, like just complete 180 in his life and was like, nope, this is amazing. This is God. <laughs> I want to share it with people. It's like, there's, why are there not like, like a Steven Spielberg movie of his life or something? Cause he sounds incredible. <laughs> I like, yeah. I mean, we can keep going with this topic. I was interested in what you were going to say about nitrous. You know, maybe we talk a little bit about the, about yeah, like uh, like what some of the the research that, like um and what it, it like I I said what my interesting kind of thought about nitrous was, but I, I was doesn't kind of curious what you were both thinking. Doesn't it have a retinopathy risk? Or am I thinking of something else? You're I know the B twelve is, but that's yeah. like chronic. Yeah. Fairly heavy use. Yeah. So I mean, I think it's an interesting thing to talk about because all of these like substances they have legitimate indications. Well quote unquote legitimate, whatever your definition of that is. Um, and so like nitrous was something that, I mean, I remember even in my very short medical career here was something we used to use a lot. And now I don't even know if I could find nitrous in the hospital. Um, but because it's considered like a drug of abuse, we don't use it. And obviously nitrous is not really something that like causes addiction per se. Um, I mean, people can definitely get habituated to it. Uh, and certainly for anyone out there, I mean, it's not totally benign. It inactivates the B12 in your body. And if you do enough of that, it leads to like breakdown of your spinal cord that isn't necessarily, uh, doesn't recover. 
Um, so I wouldn't like recommend daily nitrous use to anyone, but it is weird how once something becomes like a drug of abuse, it's just not, not used anymore. And that's kind of not really the right way to think of things. Um, and I mean, even the phrase like drug of abuse has plenty of problems, the word, the word abuse being in there. Um, but certainly like what, what makes something be a bad substance versus a good when we use it for decades in medicine. One of the more recent discussions that I've had about nitrous was um, something, and you may have both kind of seen this incidentally on Twitter, but there's been a lot of discussion lately about how IUD insertion for people that have a cervix is like so incredibly painful. And yet, well, for a lot of people it is, there definitely seems to be a gamut, which, you know, makes sense. Some people describe it as just horribly painful. And some people say it was really no big deal. Um, but it seems like physicians and prescribers are just kind of universally taught that it's really just mild discomfort and that anyone who finds it really painful is kind of being hyperbolic. Um, and that just seems to be like very much the thing that seems to be what I see over and over again. And there is this discussion of, you know, why aren't we like, for example, like take kind of a cue from dentistry. Like if you're in an acutely stressful procedure in dentistry, nitrous is probably on the on the table for you to breathe while you're going through it. So maybe we should do something like that for IUD insertion. Like you're not pregnant, it's going to be very brief in its use. It's certainly not long enough to get into the issue of you know B12 inactivation, but it would do a lot to help people kind of through that without them being. So, you know, loopy or sedated from an oral medication that they might not be able to drive home for a few hours, for example. Um, but, and the, but anyway, kept, what I kept seeing in response was this idea of, well, then we're going to have to worry about all of the nurses in the clinic getting addicted to it. If they're going to go use that, like we can't have it around. It's really bad for people. And that kind of echoes what you were saying again. I'm like, well, you know, that's not an issue in dentistry. Everyone knows that they use it. And we used to use it in non-dental medicine, you know, a lot more than we used to. It was really powerful. Can you imagine what it would have been like before the advent of all of the kinds of anesthetics we have now to have to have a bone reset or have to get surgery um, or get a tooth pulled without any kind of anesthesia? So it's really, really odd kind of how we frame things um, yeah just to just echo like, what you were saying one other kind of note there two of the biggest like arguments for like nitrous prohibition are kind of just like ecological arguments so like these canisters are bad for the environment which like is, is true um but it's like because you can't get no one can get these big kind of canisters and like the other one of the other immediate kind of risks with nitrous is that um, if people are using it from balloons, one, we're talking about food grade nitrous, not medical grade nitrous. Um, and two, like normally you have oxygen that's mixed in where you don't have that in this kind of case. And so people are, you know, huffing on these balloons and they're not getting like O2 and they end up passing out or that might be like a, like an effect of the nitrous, but like, you know, breathing in like, you know, used air multiple times, not also probably not great for your brain. Um, and you know, this is like, just a, like, if you know, people could access it in a different kind of way, um, then maybe then, you know, this could be made safer. Um, but we take these kind of arguments of like, you know, these, the way that this drug is used because like, we don't have access to it in this other kind of format and we use it to try and prohibit it. Yeah. All these like degrees of harm reduction and safe supply. Yeah. yeah. 
I can think of, I mean, there have been, <laughs> interestingly enough, of like toxicology consults in the hospital. I've been consulted for plenty of like weird cases where someone uses supplements or something. Um, and then found out later that like all of their problems were because they were actually using nitrous, not, not this other stuff. Um, but like I said, I mean, it really requires like chronic long-term use and it, it's just a B, B12 issue for the most part. So it is pretty safe as far as things go. Um, we have plenty of other unsafe things and it, it's just weird that people are like no longer really familiar with the fact that people use nitrous or that nitrous exists and nitrous can be used. Shall we uh, talk about the future? Yes. Uh, so I'm uh, imagining uh, some yeah. dreaming so, maybe. Yeah, Ryan, we were hoping that you could kind of talk about, like what Alex said, like imagining the future of treatment, but that's a really big kind of nebulous thing too. So like what, what might your work as a physician look like in the future if prohibition wasn't a thing? Like if we were able to open up to expand and, and explore options that aren't driven by prohibition? Well, yeah, so I'm glad I get to be the first one on here because I'm going to take kind of like the low hanging fruit. Um, <laughs> but I think like the future is now. And that's such a cliched phrase, but like we really are kind of here. Unfortunately, we're perpetuating a, a problematic past um, rather than moving forward. And so I think if we think in terms of kind of like the drug overdose problem that North America is seeing right now, it, it's not because people use drugs. People have used drugs for millennia. It's because the drugs that we have forced people to use have become more and more toxic. And we're now poisoning people with the policies that we take. Um, and so in places like Canada, they have adapted to this uh, and enacted things like supervised consumption sites or safe consumption sites, um, whatever you want to call them. And for whatever reason, still in the United States, in 2020, in our, our pandemic, we saw 93,000 people die alone from drug overdoses, um, rather than having access to like a supervised or safe, safe place to use drugs. Um, and so plenty of other countries have kind of decriminalized um, I don't know that anyone has totally uh, legalized drugs yet, but I think that would be kind of like the future that I would hope for. Um, and I, whenever I talk about this, and I, I should just say off the record here before I get a bunch of like angry emails, um, these are my personal opinions. These do not reflect my employer or anyone I know or, or work for or anything. Um, Wait, but do you want that, that off the record or on the record? Because I feel like you want that disclaimer for us to put up yeah that, that can be on the record uh, oh, okay, okay. yeah we'll put that we can put that before sure. you start yeah okay. um so it's fine wherever it goes um but so these are my personal opinions they are backed by a lot of evidence so i i don't just come up with these like sitting on the toilet or something um well it kind of coming back to our earlier conversation of just like toxicology you know these terms pharmacon uh pharmacology right like this uh ambivalence between like the uh the medicine and the poison uh right like it, it it's um in uh, one of the papers i i wrote about uh my first one on uh drug selling and drug checking um we we're talking to 
we had a couple of sellers that like were you know making like like because the entire fentanyl supply in Vancouver is, has been fentanyl for like since 2017 um and so like it is really just like a matter of like I refer to it more as like volatility like it, it's like actually like the difference in percentages that like you can get kind of in the supply um or even different analogs uh, they have different potencies um and like some of these like sellers like talking about like ways of the older ones of like resisting trying to sell fentanyl laced heroin um at the beginning um and then also like ways of trying to protect their customers um and kind of struggling with it but this like way of like doing it right um to try and reduce the risk to get like the percentage like consistent kind of across supply um i thought it was like really interesting um and they're like it, it it's one of the things that i i i think like we make really hard about imagining like like a different future is like if we go into it kind of you know demonizing these drugs as kind of you know as necessarily like poison um, you know, rather than having this, you know, they can have these kind of different relationships um, uh, to people. Um, and yeah, dependent on the dose, dependent on the context, um, a person's body. Well, that kind of goes back to the uh, to the serial dilutions that we were talking about in our first episode, Alex. Um, this kind of like creative, different, different creative ways to to use drugs safely. And like one of the things we wanted to talk to you about, Ryan, was like, you know, kind of like what Alex was saying, you know, fentanyl is something that people really like and prefer. Some people, some people don't, but some people do like it and, and seek it out. So do you think there's a future where we're we're getting to the point where we're helping people in the above ground context use fentanyl safely? I would hope so. Um, I mean, I think the term volatility that Alex brought up is phenomenal. I'm going to be stealing that term. Um, you can cite me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm just it's kidding. a great term. And that's like such a great way to help people understand what's going on. So people have used heroin since it was, was uh, patented by Bayer in like 1898. It was discovered maybe in like 1870s, I want to say. Um, but it was a medicine in the United States until it was banned in 1924. And it's still used in many countries around the world as a medicine. Um, but in the United States, since 1924 to present day, people have used heroin non-medically. And we never saw, obviously you can overdose on heroin, but we never saw the rates of overdose that we've seen today with people buying heroin and getting fentanyl. And going back to volatility, like, the heroin that we would see on the streets when I first started in medicine and a lot of people were using heroin. I was in Western Pennsylvania. It was a, like a hot spot at the time. Um, it was about 50% pure heroin. When the supply switched to fentanyl, the overdose rates went through the roof. And that's because the, the equivalent dose is about 1% pure fentanyl. So you get your stamp bag and 1% of that is fentanyl, where they used to be 50% heroin. Um, and the cutting agents are a, a whole nother conversation. But uh, if you think about kind of like the errors in measurement, when you're doing this kind of like imprecisely in a home lab, even your most like technologically savvy dealer here, it's not too hard to make an error. When it was 50%, if you made an error of one, 2%, that's no big deal. 
if it's 1%, if you make an error of 1% or 2%, that's like 100 or 200% more of the drug. Um, and so then that's, that's why people are overdosing. So it's not because people just like wanted to use more fentanyl. People wanted a higher high. Um, which, like I really hate those kind of framing. Um, and initially, nobody really wanted fentanyl in the drug supply. I do think we would have gotten there, as Claire said, because people do prefer it. It is much faster onset um, and can maybe some, give a little more some desirable or, or um, different effects that some people seem to prefer. Uh, it's like quicker onset, quicker off, uh, different things. But um, I would love to see a future where people could use fentanyl the same way that we have let them use heroin in other countries. Uh, in places in Europe, you could get prescriptions for heroin. Excuse me. If you're, if you have like a heroin addiction, you can get prescribed heroin. And so you get it from a drugstore or a pharmacy and you know exactly what you're getting. You use it in a supervised site. There's really no issues. Um, like we know people are going to use opioids. So if they're going to use them, why don't we just give them like a safe way to use them? I, that's, that's my real question is, and I think people think that by banning them, making it harder, making it less safe, people will stop using. And we've seen that that's not the case. Um, the DEA and the United States government as a whole has been very effective in the past like 30 years, we have destroyed most of the opium and heroin supply in the world, which for the United States was coming from Afghanistan and from Northern Mexico. And starting in like the mid to late 2000s, all of those supplies have been cut off. And that's what led to fentanyl coming up in the drug supplies. It's something you can make in a basement. You don't need warm weather. You don't need big open fields in like a deregulated area. Um, and I could make fentanyl in my own basement if I wanted, like, it's not hard. You can buy the precursors online. It takes very basic chemistry knowledge. Um, and so like we would have ended up here eventually. And it's just kind of crazy that all of our systems to react to drugs are so, well, I guess I said react already, but they're so reactionary and we only deal with this kind of supply side rather than the demand side. And we've had medicines that are available to treat drug addiction, to treat overdoses. We've had ways of regulating heroin and fentanyl for decades. And for some reason in 2021, we have no safe way for someone to access heroin or fentanyl. We still don't have good ways for people to access naloxone, the reversal agent. We don't have places where people can use drugs safely or in a supervised manner. Um, and we don't even have access to like, if someone wanted just heroin or morphine, uh, they might be stuck buying carfentanil on the street. Like it's, it's kind of crazy. And most recently in the past couple of years, we've even seen like the cocaine and amphetamine supply has become cross contaminated because the people who are selling drugs sell fentanyl and sell other drugs. And so the little bit of fentanyl residue that gets onto cocaine or crack or meth um, is now causing problems for people who didn't even want opioids. They're overdosing from fentanyl without even buying an opioid. And like, if that isn't a failure of the drug war where someone from meth using meth 
is having a fentanyl overdose, then like I, I really don't know how to reach people at this point. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and to look backwards a little bit, uh, this uh, kind of, there's this future thinking paper by the guy who um, invented the term designer drug. Um, and it was one of the first people, he was the, the, the first to figure out in the 19, early 1980s that um, it's it very regional in the United States that 3-methyl fentanyl um, was going around the drug supply. Um, I can't remember his first name, but his last name is Henderson. I'll post the paper in the notes. Um, and he, he like is like in 1988, he's like looking back kind of on this history of trying to do the whack-a-mole um, that uh, led to kind of um, an analog acts in the United States and in Canada where you ban the drugs by class. Um, although Canada's is much more strict than the United States uh, version is. Um, uh, and he, he kind of talks about, because it was a rather limited fe like fentanyl crisis, or I, I don't even think calling it that, it's kind of very helpful, but like uh, it's very like limited in like the regions that it kind of hit. And uh, in this paper, he talks about like, we're the right kind of social and economic conditions and supply conditions to kind of hit. And it wouldn't be very hard for fentanyl and fentanyl analogs to kind of fully, you know, take over um, the market. And this paper came out in like 1988. Um, uh, and it, it's like this kind of future worry that these analogs are going to kind of get ahead of us. Um, and so like you get the, uh, the U.S. has like an analog act that's not very effective at stopping analogs. The, the recent class-wide ban in fentanyl analogs is a bit different. Um, uh, in Canada, the analog act is like only around specific drugs. So in like this, the four drugs they scheduled was fentanyl analogs, PCP analogs, uh, benzyl piperidine analogs, uh, which is like piperazine, uh, which I, I don't think like has ever really become a, a thing. And then amphetamine analogs, uh, three the major concerns. You can see the crises that kind of affected, you know, this, what if like these drugs, you know, in the future have these like analogs that come out that like we can't kind of stop in time. Um, but yeah, like, you know, it kind of predicted the current crisis um, kind of in a way. So yeah, it, you know, like people saw it kind of coming. It's very um, prescient. Yeah. Yeah. And that is like the kind of thing, the more we do here, it seems, and there's this like iron law of prohibition theory that the more you prohibit things and like ban things and block products from getting to the people who want them, you end up with more and more like dangerous, potent drugs. Um, and we've seen that at least with opioids, but we've also seen it with cannabinoids, which I think is another thing that people don't really talk about too much because of everything going on with opioids and like cannabis being legalized in, in a lot of places in the United States and in Canada. But um, uh, just to confirm, you mean synthetic cannabinoids? Uh, just because I, I know that there's uh, yeah, some tensions because people confuse them with cannabis. Uh, and these are actually, we're talking about very different kind of things. No, so yeah, it is. I am talking about synthetic cannabinoids because cannabis has been criminalized and continues to be a schedule one substance that has by definition, quote unquote, no uses by uh, the US federal government. There are dozens, if not more of uh, synthetic cannabinoids that people can buy. And I'm sure everyone has heard of like Spice and K2, 
Um, but those, those are now also illegal. And so everyone keeps adding another methyl group, keeps adding another hydroxyl group, whatever it takes to bypass the, the legal regulations. And the further and further we get from like THC, the cannabinoid that people want for psychoactive effects, the further and further we get from like any desirable effects. And I'm seeing people who are like running mm -hmm. naked down the highway, people coming in with damage to their heart, damage to their muscles, damage to their kidneys, um, those kind of things just from these drugs that have only been created because someone said that cannabis should be illegal. K2 is like one of my biggest things to rail on, or I guess synthetic cannabinoids, just to not be regionally specific. Um, but yeah, you know, when they first kind of hit the scene here in Austin anyway, it seemed like the batch changed every couple of weeks, maybe. And there was always like some slight difference. It became so busy just from calls related to synthetic cannabinoids that the medical director for EMS, which is a physician, and they usually don't go out on ambulances like that's not their primary job. He had to get out and go see patients just because they were completely exhausted. Um, but it was so wild, you know, it would be like everyone's blood pressure would be super, super low and people were dying from that. And then the next week they'd be really combative. Um, and then the week after that people were hallucinating and it's just <laughs> like, there is, I have a picture of it somewhere. I need to find it and put it on the Patreon or something, but it's a photo of, um, one of the containers that, uh, they used to come in before they were prohibited here because for a brief period of time people could sell them in head shops like they were they were legal to do that and i have one of the packets and it's like covered in typos it says not for human consumption on it like it has lab certified written on it but certified is misspelled it's pretty mm -hmm. great but i'm just like especially considering like the the low comparable safety risk or i guess sorry let me rephrase that I, especially when you compare it to how safe actual grown cannabis is <laughs> when presumably that's the effect that you're going after the synthetic cannabinoids are just like a horrible mutant beast of the worst parts of the drug war <laughs> yeah it's and just when we, unnecessary and super yeah. harmful when we talk about these like synthetic analog acts which the fentanyl one in the united states is coming up again i think for it was extended for six months back in April or May. Um, so coming up again, and hopefully they will do the right thing this time. Um, but these synthetic analog acts like don't really serve anybody if you're basing your laws on cannabis is a plant that has no safe uses, is what the DEA and like the federal law says. It's a Schedule One substance, um, which cocaine and methamphetamine are not even Schedule One substances. And I'm, I'm not here to say anything negative about cocaine and methamphetamine, but I mean, com comparing these drugs and classifying them this way is very arbitrary and make, makes no sense. So, well, or even weird. like a heroin schedule one in the US, uh, but then like all one. these other semi synthetic op opioids that are like, you know, like fairly similar. And like, this is a barrier to like heroin, like these like, heroin clinics like that like you know like we have like one in canada um just to be clear like like it hasn't really gone much farther than that but like um or even in europe like these like you know like 
this is just not a, a possibility. Um, and like the, the, the scheduling there is kind of uh, arbitrary because you have all of these other drugs that are, you know, it's like same kind of risk profiles. It's like heroin, but like you've got that in schedule one, then you've got this in schedule two. Um, it's a bit different in Canada because they're all mostly scheduled by pharmaceutical. Um, they're like by um, class. Uh, so like you get all of your opioids and like, schedule one and then cocaine and there's like historical reasons for that um and then up until 2012 you had your amphetamines and like your phenethylamines are in schedule three and your benzos and barbiturates in schedule four um but uh yeah these like kind of class-wide um you know I, it's a uh, uh guilt by molecular association is what i've heard it's uh uh called yeah, uh, great phrase i'm gonna feel yeah, that's uh, that's a uh, 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 um, two researchers in uh, the UK named uh, Alex Stevens and Fiona Misham. I think coined that term. Uh, I really like it too. Um, but yeah, like when we don't even know kind of like what maybe like I, I think with the synthetic cannabinoids, like you know they've gotten progressively worse. So like we could probably say that no one would want to use them even in a, like like in any kind of legal regulated system because they sound kind of awful. Uh, just generally, um, but you know, like so we don't, some of these other drugs, like you know, might have like different safety profiles than some of the ones that we've like scheduled, and like we don't really know because we don't. There's no way of kind of testing to figure that out um, in the first place. Maybe like some of them could end up, uh, you know, like mephedrone was really big in the UK. I you know it has its own risks too. Like yes, uh, like I, I like. Um, uh, don't want to deny that uh, but you know like that's a drug that people are kind of interested in that like you know maybe uh in a future kind of world you know there'd be a safe way to or safer uh way to kind of do yeah so i mean i think it's a great point to say nobody would be interested in the synthetic cannabinoids um because like we all everyone at this point knows that these have pretty bad effects they're like unpredictable and weird and not enjoyable but for whatever reason people can't access regular cannabinoids and so they're like stuck with this option um and so like we said people are always going to want to kind of alter their consciousness as long as we've had like human civilization people have wanted mind-altering substances and the fact that we're driving people away from something like cannabis which I'm not here to say like cannabis is safe, but it like as far as drugs go compared to K2 spice and the other weirder and much worse things I've seen, I, I could care less if people had access to this. Um, I mean, like we give people cigarettes. Why, why can't we give them cannabis? Um, and it also goes back to kind of our weird DEA scheduling system in the United States which is totally based on nothing at all. Um, the DEA is solely exists as a law enforcement agency, but like cannabis is a schedule one substance. The THC that is sold by a pharmaceutical company is schedule two, even though it's literally just THC that is synthetic. And it, it's not like the synthetic cannabinoids that are totally unpredictable because you get it from a pharmaceutical company, it's regulated by the FDA but that's schedule two. Cocaine is schedule two. Cannabis is schedule one. Methamphetamine is schedule two. Cannabis is schedule one. Like heroin is schedule one. Fentanyl analogs are schedule one. Fentanyl is schedule two. So, I mean, 
there's a lot of questions I have here and they'll never be answered because there are no reasonable answers. But in terms of kind of like a future I would hope for with drugs is that we could get rid of arbitrary schedule systems. I mean, if people want to like alter their consciousness, look at other countries where people can go and do ayahuasca trips. And I think personally to me as a toxicologist and like a human being, ayahuasca sounds very unpleasant. I mean, I'd love to like have a hallucinogen experience, but throwing up for like six hours isn't the way I would want to go. I mean, I would love to see in the United States that people could access like psilocybin um, or ketamine or, or these other drugs that people are still using anyway. And they're just using in like very unsafe ways most of the time. Um, and I mean, even like MDMA that Claire had talked about is something that's been researched lately. I think it's like the US military has been researching a lot of these hallucinogens for PTSD, which is really interesting because the military should be researching treatments for PTSD. Um, but MDMA, uh, psilocybin, LSD, like these drugs don't have any sort of N organ toxicity that, that I can speak to. Um, and so if people have access to like a safe supply and a, a safe place to use them, there's really no reason why we couldn't let people use these substances. Yeah, well put. Um, I was also kind of interested to, and this is slightly off of like the, the drugs specifically, but I'm also kind of interested to see what you think about kind of a harm reduction future for non overdose related issues. Uh, so like something that Alex thought of when we were kind of brainstorming was like, uh, what kind of like medical apparatuses or procedures or protocols could we set up to help people use drugs more safely? Um, like I'm kind of imagining like giving IVs to people who inject and training them on how to maintain them and what to look for, um, you know, if they, they need care. Um, or kind of, you know, expansions on that, ways to help people avoid infection, kind of like, you know, we're seeing, and I'm sure you do constantly, like lots of skin and soft tissue infections related to injection, and then kind of sequelae from there, like endocarditis, endocarditis and sepsis and things like that. So do you have like any, any thoughts about that as we head towards a future for? Yeah. So injection drugs, like, I mean, other than the risk of overdose should not inherently be unsafe in any way. The problem is that we don't let people have access to clean needles. We don't let people have access to sterile water. We don't let people have access to even like alcohol swabs and alcohol wipes um, and those kind of things. And so one thing, and I get pushback from people in medicine about this. I get pushback from people in like the pharmaceutical community, people in the legal community, is just telling people that like, I mean, you can buy syringes, we buy syringes, you can buy alcohol wipes. Um, one thing that I see a lot is that people who inject drugs will, and I, again, like I'm, I am very ignorant on a lot of issues. I try, try my best to ask everyone and like get up to, up to speed, but people lick the syringe a lot before they will stick it in 
and your mouth is full of bacteria. And one of like the worst bacteria that can cause endocarditis and stuff is called Echinella and only lives in the human mouth. Um, and so, I mean, seeing a lot of infections, soft tissue infections, skin infections, abscesses in like muscles, arms, legs, um, and then obviously the worst being like heart valves being infected from injection drug use, that's all totally preventable. And that's not from a drug because people cook their drugs most of the time. Um, and drugs for the most part are pretty pure. Even when we counter in like the, the cutting agents, those are, are pretty pure things. Um, so it usually is just like skin flora. And if you tell someone that using a clean needle, cleaning their skin before they inject, that makes a huge difference. Even if you miss the vein, you can inject the drug and not get like a big abscess um, and unfortunately, I mean, probably like a large, I'm trying to think of a percentage, but a large percentage of the cases I see for like addiction in the hospital as a consultant is just because someone's there because they have an infection somewhere or something else. It's not like they're in the hospital for addiction, which ever, anyone who uses drugs knows that drugs don't end you up in the hospital unless you have some sort of other complication. So... I would love to see a future where people could have access to those things. And I used to actually be on an injectable medication um, and needed to get like clean syringes and needles every month from the pharmacy. And my medication came from the hospital. <laughs> my other supplies came from a commercial pharmacy. And one time I came home with my bag of like syringes and needles and alcohol prep pads and opened the bag and there was a handwritten letter inside of it that said, I know what you're doing with these. You're throwing your life away. Oh my Jesus God. Christ. Sorry. Whoa. Whoa, that's so intense. <laughs> um, that is. And like, that made me never want to go back to that pharmacy. And I was in medical school at the time. And like thinking back, I mean, I complained to the like commercial pharmacy. I don't think anything ever came of it. But looking back on that, I mean, that's horrible. And that's if who cares if I was using that to like use drugs yeah. regardless. But the fact that people who aren't even using drug based stigma because of drug stigma is another big reason why we need to get rid of drug stigma. Like mm -hmm. diabetics face this stigma. I mean, chronic pain patients face this stigma. It's just such a widespread issue that like, even if you don't use drugs, you don't want drug users to face stigma. Wow. One of the things that we like, cause I work for at a college of pharmacy. One of the things that we very expressly have been teaching our students lately is going through that scenario where someone approaches the, well, slightly different than yours, but in our scenario, someone approaches the counter to ask for syringes and we're having to kind of like preemptively work through that with them logically. And so we'll kind of like present evidence for like, even if this person is using it to, to inject drugs, you're not doing them any favors by refusing to dispense them. And usually it's like a fairly simple thing. And, you know, it's something that we're continuing to, to look into, but I'm so sorry. That is absurd, but that really is a great illustration of how drug stigma literally harms all of us. Yeah. Wow. yeah I mean I mean, it's, it's, I, I feel like, uh, you know, like very privileged kind of like, you know, like, despite like, you know, how volatile the drug market is, uh, uh, here, but like, you know, like 
like I feel like in Vancouver, like there's like needle exchange, like access and like I've gone for even friends who are on uh, like uh, hormone like replacement therapy. It just goes to needle exchange. And you could pick up like everything, you know, like there, there's like there, you want to get like some needle for like a draw because, you know, it comes in a nice file. So you can actually like do that, but you can just get like, you know, there's kind of like a, you know, there's access at like this, this place that like really like anyone who needs needles can go and get them for free and like various different kind of gauges, depending on what uh, you're kind of uh, using, right? Um, and if like you had something like, like just to kind of push one of these future ideas, like you had like, you know, your heroin come in like a pre-dosed out kind of bottle, um, like it has in the past. And like, all you have to do is put like a, like a draw needle and pull it out, switch out the thing and then put on like a, a sterile one. Like, you know, there's so many risks that you could reduce kind of immediately there because you'd have like a sterile uh, kind of environment that you're, you're working out of. You don't need to worry about the cook or like, you know, the excipients or adulterants, um, depending on what you're talking about. Um, they're in there as well. Um, right? Yeah. And that would be like my goal as like an addiction doctor. If I could get my patients who don't want to stop using drugs and like have some nurses and some medics and me and maybe the other doctors I work with, and we could have a place where we could like give people their drugs safely. That would just be, it would take all of this off the table. And I mean, if someone had an overdose, we'd be right there to reverse it. And if they wanted to get into recovery, like, Hey, you can come to my clinic next week. Here's a prescription in the meantime. I mean, like this is so easy. And for whatever reason, it's just like, Oh no, like, Needles are bad. Drugs are bad. I don't know. And I feel too, like a lot of the times people can't really clearly articulate the problem they have. It's just kind of something they've absorbed over and over again and just pass on and kind of pair it uncritically. Yeah. Well, and, and just like push back on that. Um, uh, not push back, but maybe like expand. There's a, an interesting talk at um, a conference that I, I listened to online a while back about has supervised consumption sites are not liberation. Um, and one of, one of the speakers kind of talk, like they're, they're important, like don't get me wrong, like within this kind of pro prohibition kind of system, but like the originals, like, you know, overdose prevention service, like these low barrier kind of sites that we have that are operated mostly by people who use drugs, like in Vancouver, um, that, you know, are supported with medical staff to an extent. Like the original place for that is like, is like, the thing like the opium den or like the, you know, the people using together, like if you had naloxone and you could bring someone back or you had oxygen, you know, kind of available, like in these kind of community sites, like, you know, maybe you wouldn't like, like you'd feel kind of safer kind of going there. Cause it's like this community experience that people can kind of look after you rather than, uh, you know, what we have now where it's like, you know, people even in here are, you know, afraid to go to the supervised consumption site because they maybe have stigma, but the people who are also using that service or they don't feel comfortable. They have like self stigma. Um, and so there's still kind of like barriers there. Um, but like, you know, this original kind of space of care, you know, like has like existed in the past. Um, you know, it kind of it exists to this day, like friends watching out for friends, like you wait to take your shot until the other person goes. So you have a couple of people, you all have naloxone, like that kind of thing. 
Um, you still wait, probably need to go to the hospital, um, you know, just in case naloxone wears out. But like, you know, you have this kind of community care and safe uh, space. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I see the problems with like these forced, forced consumption sites too. Um, and so I'd, I'd hope we can get to like a better, better place than that. It's just, I don't know. We're like so far away from it in the United States. Yeah. And I feel like every day we stray further from the drug God's truth. <laughs> um, I feel like that seems like a, a good place um, maybe to tie up. Claire, unless you have like any like last burning questions. Um, um. But uh, maybe Ryan, uh, you know, we've talked about like so many different things here. I guess like maybe uh, if you could do in like a couple of like, and you go longer than this, of course, but like just like to sum up like kind of your, you know, vision of a, uh, uh, of a drug future and it seems like one that is like maybe actualizable like right now in the united states you know what would it um if you can go further than that but like what would it be yeah so for me a real immediate drug future would be empowering people to know how to use drugs safely um and then treating people who use drugs the same way we treat everyone else in society, making their lives safer and better, giving them ways to not have risk for disease, giving them ways to not have risk for overdose, giving them ways to stay alive and stay healthy and stay safe. Um, and I think the easiest way to do that in the short term is with supervised consumption sites. I think the next step from that is kind of a, a safe, regulated, legalized drug supply. Um, unfortunately, I don't see legalization of drugs anytime soon in our future in the United States. Doesn't mean that I won't stop pushing for that. And I think everyone should push for that because politicians work for us, not the other way around. So those are my hopes. Uh, I mean, I, I have a lot of things. Hopefully, maybe I can come back and talk talk more about other yeah. stuff, but I think that's the short term. One of my um, mentors, Steve Stephenson, has a saying that I, I stole from him, and it's that if your goal is something that can be achieved in your lifetime, then you're not thinking big enough. So that's what I kind of like to keep reminding myself of when we talk about the legalization of drugs in the U.S. Like, no, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but the work still needs to be done for future generations to build upon. Yeah, keep screaming, keep screaming, even if nobody's listening. Yeah. 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 I feel like also the first step to uh, getting to a, a new place is to, you know, we have to be able to think of think of it. Because if we can't think of it, it's really hard to explain to people kind of like what, what we want. It's always a reaction uh, to, right? And that's kind of... Yeah, here, yeah. here. We have to dream exactly. of a better drug future. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for, both. Oh my God. So excited. Oh. It's going to be a good time. I think there was a really great conversation and you know, you were so enjoyable to have on and I got to see your dog a couple of times over your shoulder, yeah. which is always a perk. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the drug features and podcast. More information and resources about this episode are in our show notes. If you want to help us imagine a different future, 
You can support us at patreon.com slash drugfuturisms or give us a good rating on iTunes or share the podcast with a friend. After all, we can only imagine the future together. This podcast is made by Claire Zagorski and Alex Betzos. Our editor is Marcel Rambo. The art was made by Brooke Payne and our music by Jake Goodison. And remember, another drug world is possible.